If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? I am well. Although another catastrophe has occurred, as you would expect to happen with me. Honest to goodness, I don't know what's going on. So, um, in short summary, I've had this frozen shoulder, very painful. Went to see the doctor and he said, well, we could operate. And I said, no, thank you very much. Not having that. I've read enough books about operations going wrong that there's no way I'm having that. Thank you. So he said, right, well, the alternative is this steroid injection. And he said, I'm not going to lie, it does hurt, but um, it it can work. The mixed results, but it can work. So fine, let, let's go for that. Uh, and he said, right, well, should we do it now? So I thought, oh, OK, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I can't rearrange it for another day and then <laughs> get my mother to write me a note saying, Philippa can't make the injection today. I'm ever so sorry. Uh, Not that that she would do that for me. But anyway, so go in to have this injection. All very serious, very hushed. And uh, he said, right, as I I said to you earlier, it is going to hurt, um, but we'll just get it over with as, as quickly as we can. Fine. So I feel this pressure in my shoulder. And I said, do you know, that that really wasn't as bad as I as I thought it would be. And he said, no, I've just been using a biro to mark where the needle's going to go. <laughs> I just thought, oh, please let the ground open up and swallow me so that uh, people don't have to <laughs> listen to this. And yet I'm telling you what, what happens, but never mind. So yes, and let's be fair, when the actual needle went in, it was a very different sensation to a biro. So I won't make that mistake again. And if anybody says to you, oh, uh, what do you fancy doing today? We could go shopping, uh, we could go out for lunch, or do you like a steroid injection um, in your shoulder? My advice to you would be to say anything but the injection into the shoulder. Thank you very much. Uh, not not one to uh, put on my Christmas list, that's for sure. Uh, and we've survived Christmas. Well, I've survived Christmas. Have you survived Christmas? Uh, we're not quite at the new year yet. If, well, it depends when you're actually listening to this podcast, but uh, we're not quite at the new year yet. 
we're in that time of great chocolate consumption, which is always lovely for me. I don't get on the scales until I go back to work in the new year. And then I immediately regret everything that I've eaten over Christmas. But during the time, it's very lovely, very happy to, to, to have all that, those lovely chocolates. And today is like a best of the year. I'm not going to sound a great alarm to show the uh, how it's a best of the year. I did do a, a, a noise of a fairy wand in the last episode and that was pretty embarrassing and, and rather unsuccessful, I think we could say. So uh, today I'm not doing that. But what I've done is look back over the last 12 months and try to see which were, are, are my 10 favourite books. Some of them, maybe all of them, won't be a surprise to you at all. But I just thought it'd be really interesting just to look back, see which are my favourites, see which ones still stand the test of time, I guess, at the end of the year and which ones I would recommend. Um, and the first one has to be The Big Chill. And that's number two in the Scale series. It's written by Doug Johnson. Um, the first book in the series is called A Dark Matter that I absolutely loved as well. But I've read that one last year, so I can't get that one in. Uh, so The Big Chill follows on from the end of A Dark Matter. Um, you don't need to have read the first one, but really uh, you'd be missing a trick if, if you didn't, because I think they're just both glorious books. You've got three generations of women that manage to combine crime solving um, funeral directors and also you've got the grandmother who gives drum lessons all sorts of things they're unique entrancing and really good crime stories at, at their essence but enough about me waffling on and on about these wonderful books uh, I think we need to talk to Doug Johnson and find out all about it because it's just extraordinary he's such a, a a gifted writer. Now, I do have to warn you, we have some uh, gremlins along the Wi-Fi lines. So sometimes you will hear a bit of interruption um, as I talk to Doug. But please, please bear, bear with me um, because he's got so many wonderful things to say and it's just a joy to talk to him. So let's meet Doug. I wanted to talk to you about these brilliant books. Now, I first heard about A Dark Matter when I was at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Uh, this is oh, yeah. going back, what, gosh, 14 months ago. And you were there as part of the yeah. fun-loving uh, crime writers. And you yes, did, that's right, um, yeah. You did a panel as well, and they went round everybody saying, right, what is your book? <clears throat> what is your recommendation? And every one of them said, A Dark Matter. And so I thought, well, th that's quite a strong endorsement. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was beaming. I was like mortified. Yeah, that they were sitting on stage saying that. But I mean, it's nice. It was very nice of them. Well, and it made me want to get the book straight away. And uh, I completely agree. I, I mean, I know we're talking more about the Big Chill because that's the book I've read this year. But obviously, it fo follows on from a dark matter, and they're both just, just extraordinary. Hard to believe that was over a year ago it's an obvious question but I have to ask it what gave you the idea for the series yeah it was it was a couple of things so just to explain uh, I mean I'm sure I'm sure folk will maybe know this hopefully but um so the books are about three generations of women who um from the same family who have to run uh, a funeral directors and a private investigators when the patriarch of the family dies that's the setup at, at the start of the first book uh, and there's it's a, it's a trilogy so far there might be more we'll see how we go Ooh. but um um uh, yeah, so I've written the third one, but and so um, but um, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, ideas are always swirling around for all sorts of things at the same time. There was two things. One was that I was a writer in residence at a funeral director's a few years ago uh, for six months, 
Um, now I just, I mean, everyone always goes, oh, tell us more about that. So I'll tell you, I'll tell yeah, you, I can do. see it on your face. Do. You want to hear, you know, hear more of this? So, I mean, actually that was a, it was a non-fiction gig in the end. I basically wrote uh, a small um, book of non-fiction, which wasn't widely published. They just kept it in-house for a funeral director. So what I did was I um, job shadowed uh, all the staff and interviewed as many staff as possible. The idea was to give them a bit of time to reflect on what it is they do and the important role it plays in society and how it affects their own attitudes to life, mm. you know, dealing with death every day and all that mm. sort of stuff. Uh, and so I interviewed loads of them using my journalism stuff. And also I basically sat in on arranging funerals and conducting them and picking up oh. the deceased from nursing homes and uh, embalmings and stuff like that. Uh, and so I did all that work. So it was kind of a mix of reportage and interviews and stuff like that. So yeah. that was that was fascinating. But at the time, there was a running joke in the place from the staff. They would always say, um, oh, you'll get plenty of ideas for your books here. Yeah. And I, and I would say, well, not really, because you know crime novels thrive on conflict and tension and the whole point of mm. what they do is to defuse conflict and tension at an incredibly stressful time um but but the I, the whole experience kept nagging away at the back of my mind and so that was about three or four years that's three three and a half years maybe until i ended up writing about it because i couldn't see the the source of the of like the thing that would drive it you know it's a, mm. it's a really nice thing to write about i mean i've been into part of the reason i got that job i think it's because I've written about death a lot and grief and stuff like that and loss in previous books and stories. So I think that's one of the reasons I've always been really interested in writing about that. But it's kind of more, it's baked into the sort of, you know, the environment of the books effectively, mm. but it's not a driving force for a plot. But that came from at the same time, I've had an idea for a long, long time about uh, a woman who has to take over the running of a private investigators and doesn't have a clue how to do it. Mm. Uh, and so that, that kind of I just basically this one one uh, so one day just the whole I had that light bulb moment of oh what if you put the two of these things together yeah uh, and and that would give you something and then it expanded from being one woman to three women and, and, and another thing else from there well I was interested in the three generations and whether they came to you sort of complete but it would seem that there was the 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 principal first of all and then the the others came later well it, it, i mean it was very quick actually and it was a very deliberate attempt because my, my previous books up to this but i'd written 10 novels before that which were all mostly one from one point of view uh, and quite short and sort of a single plot line almost and you know kind of very deliberately claustrophobic and direct thrillers effectively and i wanted to try and expand my palette a little bit i wanted to test myself as a writer so that was one of the things was to do it from several different um, people's point of view, women's point of view, um, and very quickly, because so the first character I had was Jenny, middle-aged one, who's who's roughly the yeah. same age as me, sort of Generation X, kind of a bit of a um, f up uh, <laughs> <laughs> in various ways, but, but very, but very quickly, uh, actually, I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to know, you know, what her mum thinks of the situation, and, and actually yes. let's give her a, a daughter as well. Yeah. And actually, that very quickly, I realised that that was give me a great scope for different voices and also for different attitudes to to mm. so different generational attitudes to life, effectively, uh, and how much there's. I mean, I'm very wary of that thing about you know millennials are like this and Gen X is like this and boomers are like that yeah, because that's sure. that's hugely reductive. But actually, I thought it was really interesting just to see what a 70-year-old woman and a 20-year-old woman are going to have very different opinions mm. about everything they come across. And and they're not always the ones that you would assume for somebody of whichever age it is. That's, again, what makes it interesting. 
Yeah, I, I was sort of very wary of like, you know, falling into the cliches of, you know, um, making Dorothy a kind of that idea sometimes we have of an older person's yes. mindset, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, I'm 50 now and I think, well, in 20 years time, I'm still going to think I'm 20 because I still think I'm 20 now. Yeah. I think everyone has that sort yeah. of thing. Uh, and so I was very wary of sort of falling into those cliches of, of the generational thinking attitudes. And what I also love about the books is it's almost the multi-genres. Yes, you've got the crime and sort of thriller, but there's, there is comedy in there and then there's the family. Was it quite hard to, to balance that approach? Uh, not really. It, it came quite naturally. I'm always, I'm, I'm always intrigued. I'm very grateful when people say there's dark comedy in it because it, I, I'm, it's not something that I'm, I'm consciously aware of doing. I think it's just my mindset partly... Um, and also because I deal with really heavy stuff like I have done in previous books as well. I mean, you know, essentially this book is, you know, absolutely drowning in grief and sorrow and loss because it's, you know, funeral directors. Yeah. Um, but part of the thing and part of the experience I had when I was working at the funeral directors was, you know, there is a very, there's a very strong dark humour goes on, which yes. it's a kind of release mechanism. It's a safety mechanism for people in those circumstances. And, and you see all the time, actually, that, you know, that sort of, and I, I think if you write characters who are sort of intelligent and self-aware, then if you put them in a situation where it, it's it's so awful, it's ridiculous, then they, they can't do anything else but make fun of their own the own awful situation that they find themselves in. And I love the fact that she's a drum teacher. I mean, crikey, I've got children that play the drums and there are a wide variety of drum teachers I've I've come across. <laughs> she is brilliant, though. She's the sort of person that I would want to teach me drums. I mean, I, I loved how you included that in as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a drummer, obviously. And I, have yeah. been asked, I mean, it's, it's weird to think about it that I actually that's the longest... Uh, the longest relationship I've had in my life is with drums because I was drumming off major five or something oh. um and I, I I'd never used it in any of the books actually really uh, and, and I wanted to use it and I thought Dorothy who's 70 I thought it'd be really interesting for someone older to be doing that uh, because there's a couple of things I mean she uses the drumming as a kind of meditation almost there's a yeah, element of yeah. release and that kind of kind of meditative state she gets in but also the kind of teaching of the drums because she, she does it exclusively with like young with girls and young women and it's a kind of this thing of like well actually it's a sort of empowering thing for mm. them as well because it is quite an empowering thing because you're getting to hit things you know <laughs> so it's quite good um and I just thought it was really interesting for her and of course if she's if she's older she's you know she's experienced the whole you know You've experienced everything from the hippie, you know, the yeah. hippie scene of the 60s all the way through punk, all the way through everything else, you know, like to the modern day. So I thought that was really interesting. And it gave me an excuse to sort of, you know, write a bit about music as well, which I always love. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed that. So when you'd written the first book in the series, A Dark Matter, and you were coming back to write The Big Chill, was it was it hard to sort of get back into the Skelf groove or was that just there and you could just turn the tap on? It was actually surprisingly easy. I mean, it's, well, it was, a, a, again, another deliberate thing for me to try and write um, a series of books or, you know, at least three books uh, with mm -hmm. the same characters because I'd never done that before. Uh, and so I kind of, I deliberately at the start had an overarching idea of something that would span two or three books. Uh, and so I, was, I knew I was going to come back. And actually I found that, I mean, it's, you know, there's pros and cons. I found, because I'd built the world in the first book, really, and sort of set it up. So actually, it was quite easy to go back into that. Mm. I think the, the downside is, or the slight worry you have is, you worry that you're that you're 
just writing the same book again. You know, I think that yeah. I think the series writers have that sort of concern, especially the longer it goes on. You just worry that, you know, maybe book six is, you know, very like book five or very like book two. Uh, and so I was kind of trying to push things on. And part of that was, I mean, the way the Big Chill starts, I mean, it's six months after uh, A Dark Matter, um, and they absolutely have not got over what mm. has happened in A Dark Matter. It's very mm. much a part of their makeup, like, you know, uh, Hannah's going to therapy or counselling and stuff like that. And they've all tried to deal with stuff because I didn't want it to just be sort of brushed off and yes. then moving on to the next the next bunch of cases. Yeah. Because what happened to them in the first book was quite, was really very personal. Mm. Um, and I wanted that to be reflected in, in how they're coping or not coping in the second book. So hopefully that'll, it means that it's kind of a progression as well. So it doesn't just, doesn't just feel like we're starting again from scratch. And how do you keep that pace going? Because it, it is, I hate to use the phrase page turner, but it, it is, you want to know, you care about the characters and you want to know what happens. Do you um, very carefully plot it all out or does it just, the pace just happen? I have actually been more, yeah. I mean, I'm generally a bit of a plotter. I'm kind of half and half between a plotter and a pantser. I kind of usually have the start and the end mapped out, but the middle is usually quite vague. But with these books, because they're so complex, there's three different mm. women's point of view and, and sometimes four storylines of different cases and different personal storylines and sometimes even more than that going on. So I did make a point of, I mean, I've got a, I've got a big board here in my office with like index cards that are colour-coded for the different oh, characters. Gosh. And they've all got numbers on them for which plot line it is they're doing. Uh, and so I was quite, I was quite meticulous with the planning. But part of the pace thing is, um, I mean, I, I write in, I've always written in short bursts. Like I'll do a day's writing in, in like no more than two hours probably. And I can write a chapter in two hours. Uh, and I kind of always thought from the start that if you kind of go back or spend all day working over it, it just get, it starts to get really tired mm. because you're tired and you're kind of mm. fed up with it. And also, this is like really short chapters. It's like, this, I mean, it's an editing thing almost apart from anything else. It's like you arrive at a scene as late as possible and you leave as early as possible and have yeah. it still make sense for the reader. Yes, uh, so you don't, I mean, and it tends to be first drafts, you tend to write, you know, all, you know, they get up and then they go and make a cup of tea and then they go to the shops and, and it's like, and all of that can just, can just go. It's like, when's the exciting thing happening? Like, that's when we start. That's the kind of, that's the rule anyway, I think. Don't you think that's in some ways, though, reflecting your journalist background as well? The very much that, right, I've got a window, I've got to write so many words, I've, it's got to be done. I can't take the whole day. Let's just work. Yeah. And, and also that, like, finding the finding the crux of what, what it is you're doing uh, as well. Yeah, the journalism stuff definitely comes into it. You know, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite um, uh, methodical about the work. I just sit down and do it, you know, and get something done. Uh, and that thing about, I mean, I remember... Um, uh, I studied journalism briefly and we had a thing where we had to write up a, a press release on bicycle safety or something, you know, to 500 words. It was a police press release. And then, so he wrote up 500 words for a local paper. And then our tutor said, right, now make it 200 words. Now make it 100 words. Now oh, make it 50 words. Yes. Now make it 20 words. And basically that's your story. And I've, that's always stuck with me is yeah. like, you know, what is, what is the, the, the crucial bit of information that people want here? Mm. Uh, and you put that you know as early as possible there's no point in delayed gratification there's no point in like you see these buzzfeed articles where you know you click on it and it doesn't tell you the information you want until like paragraph yeah. eight and you're just like oh that's so it's so, it's yeah. so frustrating i can't be doing with that at all and um i'm interested in, uh, in what point in your life you considered yourself to be an author because you're now sort of 12 books 12 published books down mm. uh, but you've been a journalist 
at what point did you sort of put on the the author's scarf and say, yeah, this is me, I'm an author? <laughs> I'm afraid I don't have an offer scarf, so. <laughs> but um, I should get one. Yeah, I should get one of those like sort of jackets that they all wear. Um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Actually, it, take, it took me a while to get used to it because I mean, I was I was doing journalism. It's not like I stopped ever doing journalism. I was that was my main income. Still, when I had right. one, two, three books published, I was still mainly making money from journalism, actually, and then starting to get some teaching gigs. And I think that's quite common for a lot of writers, you know, that it's a, it's a portfolio career, isn't it? <laughs> that you, you basically you do about five different things that adds up to a living. Yeah. Um, but I guess it took a while. It certainly wasn't when the first book published. I would, you know, if folks asked me what I did, I would say journalist for quite a long time. Yeah. Maybe book three or something, book four, something like that. When I start to think, well, maybe I might actually have a career at this. Otherwise, I'm, it just feels like you kind of get lucky, then you get lucky again, then you get lucky again. Yeah. But that's like that's kind of like I remember Ian Rankin got asked, you know, how to be how to be a successful writer, and he said, I've got two bits of advice. One is get lucky. Two is stay lucky. And I just yes. thought that's like yes. There's so there's so much of it is just down to down to luck, unfortunately. But so, that could apply to so much in life as well, to be honest, yeah. not, not just writing. So can I ask about when when you first got published, how that happened? Because there's so many people who are, are, are trying to write and, and get that deal. Um, did you go through the process of getting an agent and then getting published? Or how did that all work? I've got a slightly, uh, well, I didn't have an agent. It's a slightly convoluted and an unusual story. And this was kind of back in, so my first novel was published in 2006 but I was writing seriously like working on novels from 2002 I think mm-hmm. uh, maybe a bit earlier than that actually but I, I wrote a book which was my first published novel which and I didn't have an agent I didn't know anyone in the business or anything like that and it was kind of before social media so you couldn't like you know stop yeah. editors and agents <laughs> yeah and <laughs> um, you didn't know what they were looking for or if they were you know whatever so I, I wrote a novel which was the Ossians um uh, which was based on my own kind of experience of being in bands. And I just sort of bought the Writers and Artists Yearbook, you know, and, and basically looked up mm. all the agents and editors and, and emailed them. And, and it was the days when you had to print off, you know, whole manuscripts yes. and put them in the post yeah. and all this stuff. So I did all that. And then it got, and it got rejected by everyone. Um, so about, I don't know, 50 agents and 25 publishers or something all said no. But a couple of the publishers said no in quite a nice way. They sort of said, well, you know, we like this, but for whatever reasons, we don't think we can publish it. But if, you know, mm. if you're writing anything else, let us know, which was kind of enough of an incentive for me to keep going. Cause mm. I, I, I wasn't just totally wasting my time of course. sort of thing. Uh, it was just a little bit of, you know, affirmation. And so I wrote a second book, which was tombs, which was tombstoning, which I sent to both of those editors and they both offered to publish it, uh, which was incredible. One of which was Penguin, which is where I went with. And at that time I didn't have an agent. I got an agent very, because I'd kind of, um, long story short, I'd kind of been chatting to various agents. Um, somebody had put me on to someone else. And, and then when I got offered a deal, my agent said, well, you've done the hard bit, but if you want someone to negotiate the contract and blah, blah, blah. And to be fair, yeah. and she got she got me, you know, an increase in my advance and better contract and stuff like that. So she earned her money straight away. But yeah, um, but that was, so that was, and you always think that's, I think a lot of us aspiring writers think that's the kind of end point, you know, mm. um, you know, you're looking to get published and you get published, but it's really, it's really the starting point. I mean, and I've, you know, I've been dropped by publishers, you know, I've changed agents at different times. So, I mean, it's a kind of ongoing crapshoot, really. You just have to mm. keep writing the stories you want to write and 
hope that you can find an audience, you know, however, or readership, however that, however that happens. That must be incredibly hard, though, because it's um, it, it, it's part of your soul and, and writing is such a personal thing. It must be very difficult during that process when you don't know what what good news lies ahead. Yeah, it is very it's very frustrating, you know, being out on submission to, to various publishers. And then, you, you know, my agent now is very good at, at getting back to me. He, he lets me see all the rejections. But that's why I want to do that, because otherwise you don't really know. And of course, every rejection is very effusive. Oh, we love this. But, you know, this is amazing. But um, and it, you just get used to it, honestly, Phil. But it's like, you know, I've, you know, I've got 12 books out now and it's like it is it's part of the life actually it is frustrating um but there's not a lot you can do about it actually mm. um so you just have to you know write the best story that you want i mean i what i would say is you should write something that you'd be proud of even if it doesn't get published mm. um rather than trying to write something that you think will get published that you're kind of embarrassed yeah. about or sick of or whatever Yes, and and enjoy that process. Don't just wait and think you'll only enjoy it when you get the email saying, "Yeah, we'll appoint I, you." And actually, I've found I've, I've really I don't know what it is. Um, I, I really enjoy um the writing process now, probably more than ever. Um, it's sort of weird thing happened. Like I um I had a I had a stroke in March, um just before lockdown. Um, and actually, I started writing the third book of the Scales trilogy in like about a month after or six weeks after Gosh. I had the stroke because, but, I mean, it was partly, it was actually a sort of a method of recovery for me because wow. and apart from anything else, you know, the whole COVID thing was, you know, really hitting yeah. everyone hard at the same time as I was sort of recovering from my stroke as well. But just the, being able to focus on, you know, a fictional world for a couple of hours and I, and I you mm -hmm. know, and I just kind of really dedicated to it and I basically wrote every day for four months and then had a book you know it was like and I really I really enjoyed that process and I'm already writing another book which is I'm right now writing a science fiction novel which I'm really enjoying as well oh so wow. um yeah and I and I just decided to do that because I've always wanted to and I just thought well you know it's that thing write the stories that you want to read you know so you just I just getting on with it oh fantastic well I'm glad writing makes you happy because reading your books makes us happy so it's oh, thank you so just much brilliant but thanks doug i really appreciate you joining me today it's been brilliant it's been great fun thank you very much well that was very exciting wasn't it it's just really useful and fascinating to talk to the author themselves it just gives an added perspective on these glorious books um, uh, I just thought that was that was wonderful. So the first book of my top 10 of the year is The Big Chill by Doug Johnson. And I think it's a it's a great one to start with. The next one will come as no surprise to you. It's a book called 5050 and it's by Steve Kavanagh. 5050 follows the trials of a lawyer, a sort of con man originally who's, who became a lawyer. Um, and it's based in America. You don't need to have read any of the others in the series. So if you just fancy dipping your toe in with this, why not? And it's based on the fact that a, a girl calls 911 in America to report the fact that her father's been murdered and the murderer is still in the house and it's her sister. And minutes later, seconds later, there's another call to 911 from a, a, a woman saying her father's been murdered and the murderer is still in the house and it's her sister. So you've got both sisters calling in and the whole case, the whole story is who did it? And, and you just don't know. It's 
brilliantly written. I know I go on about how great a writer Steve Kavanagh is, but it's just brilliantly written. It's a great book. And if you've read 50-50 but haven't read any of the others, I'd suggest going straight into 13, which is actually the book before, but you you don't need that. It's it's they've got the same jewels. Um, and if you enjoy that, well, there's the whole, whole series for you to read. So that's my second one, 50-50 by Steve Kavanagh. Third one on the list, again, is a favourite author of mine. Uh, the book is called The Curator and the author is M.W. Craven. Um, they've or uh, both Steve and uh, Mike Craven have been on the podcast this year. So do look back um, for their interviews. The Curator follows this brilliant um, combination of sort of British uh, detectives. Um, you've got Washington Poe and Tilly Bradshaw and they're, they're great crime books uh, at their soul but you have these very unique characters you have the brilliant landscape of the Lake District and you have twists and a plot that will just uh, you will just not be willing to eat sleep until you finish the book it's just extraordinary and yes if you can go back to the beginning and start the puppet show I really would suggest that because these characters are gems but if you just think I, ha I haven't got the time I, I haven't got the energy to start again another series I just want to get in on this one and see if I like it then read the curator because the the twists and the plot won't detract from that at all uh, just really really good um, so that's number three. Now, the fourth book is one, again, I talk to people about a lot. Whenever I see someone saying, oh, I need a book that's joyful, something different, um, a book to take my mind off things. What do you recommend? This is the one I'm always saying. Have a read of it or have a listen to it because it's great on audiobook as well. And it's called The Miseducation of Evie Epworth by the wonderful Matson Taylor. Again, you can hear my interview with Matson um, earlier this year. The Miseducation of Evie Epworth is just a great book. For me, it's like Sunday evening TV. It's got that element of comfort, but it's also got something um, disarmingly joyful about it. And yes, there's sort of the highs and lows of, of what the heroine is going through. Um, it's very funny. It's very evocative. I, I just think it's it's a great book. It's one everyone should read. I haven't met a person yet that I wouldn't recommend it to. Um, I, I haven't. It's just lovely. And it's one that, despite it being a, a Radio 2 book club choice, which is incredible, there's still a lot of people that haven't heard about Evie and this is wrong and we need to correct this immediately. So The Miseducation of Evie Epworth, brilliant. So that's my number four. Um, now we're nearly halfway through. Who'd have thought? So number five has to be How to Disappear by Gillian McAllister. Again, I've interviewed Gillian this year. How to Disappear is a standalone sort of psychological thriller, but it's about so much more than that. And it's a book that that you will, I would imagine you will love. Everybody's loving it. Um, it's a book about a girl who has to make changes in her life and those changes have very significant implications on her and her family it makes you look at the impact of crimes in a different way um, and it brings some really fresh perspectives to it it's tight tightly written beautifully written um, it's just a, it's just a great book and if series aren't for you how to disappear is certainly one to stand up 
uh, and and be counted. Um, now, the next one is a crime book. Oh, there's quite a few crime books. You know me, like a good crime. And it's by Louisa Delange and it's called Nowhere to be Found. Um, it's actually not the first in the series, but it's the first book I read in the series. And I just thought it was different, um, original, good crime book and just written in a style that you know you're going to enjoy, like a Cara Hunter. It's just it pulls you in straight away and uh, and you're not disappointed. So that's Nowhere to be Found. Um, the next book, what are we on now? Number seven, we're on already. My goodness, I'm going to leave you with lots of time today, aren't I? Maybe I'm talking a bit quickly. Anyway, never mind. Too much chocolate. There we go. Um, the next one, it, it has, I have to have an Ellie Griffiths in here because Ellie's writing is just astonishing. And if she wasn't in my top 10 for the year, then I would need to go and bang my head on a desk and ask myself why. Um, and the book I've selected is actually a standalone or as close as a standalone as you can get. And it's called The Postscript Murders. Uh, now, there's been a lot of attention on Richard Osmond's Thursday Murder Club. Uh, I say this one is better. It's got essences of that, but it's different. And it's, I just think it's a captivating book. It's um, a really good sort of crime to solve. Um, and it's just, yeah, it should be there on your on, on your list. The Postscript Murders, Ellie Griffiths, just wonderful. Um, and speaking of wonderful, but very different, the next book I'm going to mention is The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. Um, this has been out for a long time and I've had the book for quite a while on my shelves thinking I must get round to read it. And thank goodness we covered it in book club. So I did get to read it and it's it's as wonderful as I thought it was. I haven't heard a bad review about this book and, and I would agree. Um, it's very different. It's the, the life of a boy from the moment he's born um, in Ireland and... Uh, all, all the ups and downs of his life it's it, it's funny um uh, some of the things that happen are almost unbelievable but it's joyful it's heartbreaking it's just a fully captivating story and I, I I'm if you haven't read it I really would suggest that you consider it and it's certainly um a different type of read to some of the crime books that I often talk about. So that's The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. Um, number nine is Take Me Home by Alex Hart. This was the book that from the minute it arrived in the post, I just sat down and started reading it and, and couldn't stop. I was cooking while reading it. Fortunately, I didn't need medical attention. No burns were sustained, which which was good. Um, but it's just a story about a little girl turns up and uh, nobody knows who she is or, or where she's from. Um, and I thought it might be quite a hard book, quite a difficult book, um, because I thought it was all going to be heartbreakingly awful about this child. And, and, it, and it wasn't. There was a lot more to it than that. It packed a punch, really good characters, um, a, a good read. So that's Take Me Home by Alex Hart. And the last one, the final one, is totally different. Run Rebel by Manjeet Man. This is a great book. It's YA. It's verse. You know, I love a verse story. And it's just about a girl trying to respect her family and yet have her own life as well. And there's so much of the book where you're just so frustrated for her and upset for her and willing her on. 
Um, it, it's an incredible read. You should, everybody should be reading that that sort of book. If you've not read uh, a verse prose before, is it the first one to start with? I certainly normally say we'll start with something like a Sarah Crossan, but actually, why not start with this one? It's just a great book. It's got it's got guts in it. I've I've got both my hands in fists and I'm clutching them uh, to my heart as I'm speaking, which <laughs> is either a, a sign that uh, someone needs to dial nine 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 and I'm having a heart attack, or I really love this book and I'm pleased to confirm no medical attention required. I really love this book. So I think we've covered all sorts there in, in the range from, uh, well, we do have a lot of crime books, but also a few alternatives as well. Um, if you're going to ask me which is which is my favourite, I, I couldn't possibly say. Um, I think I think authors Doug Johnson, Steve Kavanagh, Mike Craven, Matson Taylor, so I'm keeping going, Gillian McAllister, Ellie Griffiths, Manjeet Man, that those would probably be my top, what's that, top seven, so I'm not very good at choosing my favourite. But all of those top ten, I think if you got those, you, would, uh, you wouldn't need to find anything else to occupy yourself with. You'd just sit down and read those and have a lovely time. So if you're listening to this and it's still 2020, may I wish you a very happy new year. My goodness. Don't we need a good new year? Don't we need a good 2021 ahead of us? Um, and you take care and I will speak to you again very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.